Hi, everybody. It's Martine. So this is it. Our special post-subscription offer for podcast listeners ends this weekend. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you should be. We are so thrilled about all the people who've taken the time and effort to support this podcast and the journalism at The Washington Post. It really makes a difference. And for these last few days, it's even more affordable than usual. $59 total for a two-year digital subscription to The Washington Post. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And thank you so much. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 29th. Today, the coal state senator who holds the key to Biden's ambitious climate agenda, plus creative thinking in a snowstorm. Basically, this, uh, this uh, COVID emergency relief uh, package started uh, the day after the election. Back in December, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia stood with a bipartisan group of colleagues to announce the latest pandemic relief package. Manchin has always occupied this unique place within the Senate. He's a Democratic senator, but he's very, very centrist. He actually voted with Republicans to support Donald Trump's nominees more than any other Democrat. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. She says that Manchin is a dealmaker, as much as that exists in the Senate these days. And I know there's an awful lot of you thought that can't be done. You surely, to goodness, couldn't everything agreed on and put into a bill. Well, guess what? We did. Joe Manchin has kind of suddenly become basically one of the most powerful people in Washington. Because the Senate is divided 50-50 now, since the Democrats won both races in Georgia, that means that he is like the vote, basically, that will allow the Democrats to get a majority. And that's important in a lot of different scenarios for a lot of different issues, but will be incredibly important when it comes to climate change. Yeah, definitely. In addition to being kind of the 50th senator, Manchin is also going to be the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, which oversees a lot of things relating to energy policy, funding for renewable energy, and also public lands. And so he has this huge amount of power over climate policy. And we now have a president who ran on the most ambitious climate agenda that's ever been proposed by a U.S. president. And Manchin is really going to be in a position to determine what gets passed and how far Biden is able to go with his agenda. So let's talk a little bit more about who Manchin is, where he comes from, and what brought him to this moment. Like, tell me more about his background. He grew up in coal country. Both his dad and his grandfather were the mayor of this small coal mining town called Farmington. He grew up there. He went to West Virginia University, was going to play football, but then he got an injury. He then went into business. He wound up running a coal brokerage firm, actually, for a while before getting into politics and serving in the West Virginia legislature and then eventually as West Virginia governor. And it's interesting because he's been a Democrat his whole career, 
But his rise has really paralleled this really dramatic transition in West Virginian politics, where West Virginia used to be very reliably Democrat and now votes almost entirely Republican. Manchin is actually the last Democrat to hold statewide office in West Virginia. And the fact that he's been able to kind of hang on so long is a testament to the very like particular combination of characteristics and policies that he has that has enabled him to just get elected again and again. And tell me more about that. Like, what are the characteristics that he has as a politician that have allowed him to be successful in West Virginia? I mean, Manchin is the character. People might have heard that during the negotiations in December over the federal budget, he actually had a mason jar of moonshine that he allegedly was using to kind of lubricate the discussions. He sleeps on a houseboat on the Potomac called Almost Heaven. Wait, what? He actually sleeps on a houseboat? He sleeps on a houseboat, yeah. Like that's his residence in (laughs) D.C.? He doesn't have an apartment here. (laughs) And he'll joke about like, oh, you know, I'll just like float away down the river back to West Virginia. He's very personable. He has really strong relationships both in Washington and outside of it. He's a deal maker. He is friendly with Lisa Murkowski, who was the chair of the Energy Committee during the last Congress. And they've actually gotten quite a bit of legislation passed together. And he has a lot of conservative stances that you might expect from a legislator from West Virginia. So he's pro-gun, he's pro-life, he's very resistant of a lot of environmental regulation. Actually, when he was first running for Senate in 2010... I'm Joe Manchin. I approve this act because I'll always defend West Virginia. As your senator, I'll protect our Second Amendment rights. That's why the NRA endorsed me. He had this ad where he fired a gun at the cap-and-trade proposal that President Obama had at the time that was going to regulate carbon emissions. I sued EPA, and I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill. So he definitely marches to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't vote with the party line. And it's going to be interesting to see how he uses his influence now that his party is in power and they basically need him in order to get things done. So if Joe Manchin is the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, has ties to a coal town and the coal industry, what is the argument for why he is actually a very bad person to be at the helm of Democrats' ambitious climate change goals? Yeah, I mean, I think that people are kind of anxious to see what he does. I mean, Manchin, if you look at him over his career, he generally has a fairly low rating from the League of Conservation Voters. It's about 50% of his votes are considered pro-environment and 50% are considered against. And he has, you know... I mean, in addition to shooting the cap and trade bill, he supported President Trump withdrawing the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. He's said that the Paris Accord is unfair because it gives too much leeway to other countries and is unnecessarily harsh on the U.S. He's generally voted to restrict the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate emissions, to regulate the release of toxic chemicals from power plants. And, you know, President Biden ran on proposals to do things like implement a clean energy standard for the whole nation, which basically would put limits on the amount, the emissions that could come from the power sector. And he's expressed a lot of hesitancy about that, too. And, you know, he says 
that we need the fossil fuel industry, that things like natural gas and fossil fuels sources of electricity are what make energy cheap. But on the other hand, you have environmental activists and climate scientists in the United Nations that say that the U.S. and the rest of the world need to almost have our emissions in the next 10 years and cut carbon emissions down to zero by 2050. Manchin will say things like it's not politically realistic, but scientists are saying, but it's scientifically realistic. Like this is what the earth demands. And so why would someone like Manchin, who clearly has hesitation about more ambitious climate change policies like what Biden is proposing, why would he be put in charge of the committee in the Senate that focuses on energy? I mean, part of it is that the Democrats need him, right? They needed him to run for Senate. They were going to lose his seat to a Republican if he didn't, because they know that Manchin is probably the only Democrat in West Virginia who could still win that Senate seat. But I also think that one of the things that we saw in our reporting is that Manchin has shifted a bit over the course of his career on climate and energy issues. So even though his record overall from the League of Conservation Voters is kind of middling, his ratings have actually gotten quite a bit better in the last few years. While he was ranking member on the Energy Committee and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska was the chair, the two of them passed two of some of the most significant pieces of legislation relating to climate and the environment that have really ever been passed. One of them was the Great American Outdoors Act, which permanently authorized this fund that pays for conservation. And then the other one was in the most recent federal spending bill, the two of them secured billions of dollars for renewable energy and clean energy and carbon capture. That was a very, very significant investment, the biggest investment that Congress has ever made in renewable energy. And so, you know, when we asked Manchin, like, what do you say to the environmentalists who are worried about your tenure and your position? He was like, well... Sarah, I don't think, and you talked to the people who were skeptical before when I first came in a couple years ago. First thing Lisa Murkowski and I did, they said, oh my God, West Virginia, Alaska, what's going to happen? First thing we did was did a climate. We did a hearing on climate. We want to make sure that people in our states know that we're responsible. We're all in a responsible position. And I don't think they had the same concerns they might have had way back when. And does Manchin say anything about whether his thinking actually has changed? Like, how does he talk about issues like climate change and about the need to shift where we as a country get our energy from. You know, the interesting thing is that Manchin has never denied the science of climate change. There's nobody I know in my state that wants to drink dirty water or breathe dirty air. I can assure you, I'm as environmental as anyone else. I'm, I'm pretty rational and practical about it, too. You know, staffers and friends and basically everyone who's worked with him always says that Manchin's number one guiding policy principle is what's good for West Virginia. And if you look at what's happened in West Virginia since Manchin first came to the Senate, the reality is that the coal industry there has declined significantly. And that's not because of government regulation. That's because coal is just not very competitive in the energy market anymore. Markets are changing, whether you want to or not, and whether you want to accept it or not. It's a lot more expensive than other energy sources. 
And I think Manchin sees adaptation to climate change, the investment in renewable energy and things like carbon capture as an opportunity to put resources into West Virginia to help revitalize its economy. I mean, a major research lab on carbon capture is based in Morgantown, West Virginia. The West Virginia coal miners and the people in the industry and in the energy industry feel like a returning Vietnam veteran. They've done everything the country's asking them to do. They've provided the energy to build the industrial line, to basically defend us during the wars. And now no one is thrown to the side. And the only thing I'm saying, give them a chance. They'll build you a windmill. They'll build you a solar panel. And if you're going to use your tax credits to develop new technologies and energy, at least make people using those new tax credits, use them in the areas that lost the jobs, that brought you to where you are today. And so it's not so much that his ideas about climate change and the environment have changed, but it's that he now believes that acting on climate change, that making these investments and transitioning the economy could actually be good for his constituents. And so it seems like in some ways Manchin kind of embodies these two different ideas of like how Democrats can pursue climate change, right? Like maybe he's going to be the person who stands in the way of these ambitious ideas and prevents Democrats from doing all the things that they think that they need to do in this moment. But at the same time, like maybe he's the person who's the key to making some of these climate change goals more palatable to a larger swath of the country and finding a way to make it seem like a good thing for more people. Yeah, and it's not an accident that when you hear Joe Biden talk about his climate agenda, he basically talks about it as a jobs plan. A key plank of our Build Back Better recovery plan is building a modern, resilient climate infrastructure and clean energy future that will create millions of good-paying union jobs. I mean, he talks about jobs that are going to come out of building electric vehicles. We see these workers building new buildings, installing 500,000 new electric vehicle charging stations across the country as we modernize our highway system to adapt to the changes that have already taken place. And decarbonizing the nation's infrastructure. Millions of jobs in wind, solar, and carbon capture. He's framed climate change as an opportunity to create jobs and put Americans back to work after the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think part of that framing is because people want to be able to work, right? The idea that tackling climate change is actually going to be good for the U.S. economically in addition to good for people and for the planet environmentally is a framing that lots of folks can get on board with. And I think that that is definitely something that we're going to see more of. It's going to be a way that Democrats try to get people like Joe Manchin on board with climate legislation. I mean, you could even see in the energy bill that was passed in December, that was a bipartisan effort. It's worth pointing out also that the vast majority of Americans support federal action on climate change. A survey from the summer found that two-thirds of people thought the government should be doing more to tackle climate change, both Democrats and Republicans. So this idea that climate action is controversial, it's actually not the case. I think most people know that it needs to happen and they want it to happen. So when it comes to what from the Biden agenda will actually be possible in the next two years or the next four years, 
What would it take to get Senator Manchin on board with what Biden is proposing or what other members of Congress who have been behind the Green New Deal are proposing? Manchin has been pretty dismissive of the Green New Deal, basically calling it a dream. I think that some things that you could look for him to sort of be seeking in any environmental or energy-related legislation, one thing is he would like to see the credits for building out renewable energy and renewable energy infrastructure be aimed at incentivizing people to do that construction in fossil fuel states, right? So in places where there are going to be jobs declining because of the decline of fossil fuels, that's where he believes the investment in renewables should be. So you can look to see that. You can also look to see heavy investment in carbon capture, which is a technology that would pull carbon out of the air and either lock it in rock or find some kind of other use for it. Right now, it is not cost effective, but I think that the idea is if you could make it cost effective, it could help kind of smooth the transition from fossil fuels because gas-fired power plants and other things would be able to capture their carbon and keep working as the renewable energy infrastructure gets built. That's something that he's a big advocate of. And like I mentioned, there's a center for it in Morgantown. So, you know, he's looking out for West Virginia there too. And I think that just writ large, he says that he supports energy transition through innovation, not elimination, right? So he is pretty opposed to things like regulating carbon or putting a price on carbon. And I guess, you know, we'll see if it's possible to actually make that energy transition happen without some kind of regulation of carbon. We're in a golden opportunity to try to get compromise back, to try to get bipartisanship back, to try to basically look at the other side. It seems like the big question here is, is all of that going to be enough, right? Like, yes, Manchin could be the key to getting more people, more businesses, more states on board with trying to make some of these changes. But if the science is saying that all of this needs to happen now and as aggressively as humanly possible, then is the the Manchin view of this going to be adequate to save us from some of these dire effects? I mean, that's the gazillion dollar question. I think that we've talked about Manchin as this like negotiator. He likes deal making. He likes compromise. He's an advocate for bipartisanship. But the earth doesn't negotiate. The physics of the greenhouse effect are not negotiable. And so a lot of environmental activists and advocates for climate action say we can't afford to compromise on this agenda because if we do compromise, if we water it down, then we're going to fail to meet the emissions reductions that are necessary. And then untold millions of people are going to suffer as a result. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post.
And now, one more thing from reporter Andrea Salcedo about finding a plan B for vaccine distribution. It's an account that she heard from Michael Weber, the public health director in Josephine County, Oregon. So on Tuesday afternoon, a team of about of 20 um, healthcare workers and uh, volunteers in Oregon had just wrapped up their vaccination clinic uh, because a snowstorm was coming. So they had to cut short the vaccination that day, but they had six leftover doses of the Moderna vaccine left. And by that, I mean that the vaccines were already inside of the syringes. And that basically meant that they had a couple of hours left to use the vaccines or else they would have to discard them. So they are on their way to the local public health department to administer this last doses of the Moderna vaccine that they had left. A snowstorm is going on. And of course, there's a truck that just had an accident in the middle of the road. So authorities informed them that the road is going to be closed for at least two hours, maybe four. So they very quickly realized that they had six doses left that needed to be administered soon or else they, they would expire. That's when they started to think, OK, what do we do? And uh, that's when Michael Weber had this idea of, to get out of his car and start asking people if they would want to get the coronavirus vaccine in the middle of the highway. Uh, wait, 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 wait. So these people just were they're stuck in the middle of a snowstorm. And they're just like, we're going to just get out in the middle of traffic and start giving people vaccines? Yeah. So they have, you know, one bucket with the vaccines and like medical supplies, the other bucket for the container for the needles. And off they go. They start trekking the highway and knocking on people's cars on the windows. Hey, we are with the public county. Would you want a dose of the Moderna vaccine? And people's reactions were mixed. I mean... A lot of people politely listened to them, but declined. And it took them about 45 minutes to find six people to say yes. The six people who said yes, I mean, they couldn't contain their excitement. Like one man got out of his car, took his shirt off and kind of like, here, here's my arm. Like, give me the vaccine now. I'm just imagining this like shirtless man out in the middle of the snowstorm being like, yes, I'm about to get vaccinated. Uh, Yeah, he the cold didn't matter to him as long as he could get the shot. Another woman was like shaking out of excitement, like she could barely like sign the paperwork. And uh, one lucky driver, actually, it was she had an appointment for the earlier vaccination at the high school where they were and she couldn't make it because of the snowstorm. And she she was one of the of the lucky six uh, strangers who got it that day, and like the public health worker told me, she was it was meant to be for her. So all six vaccines they were able to successfully deliver in the middle of a snowstorm, and everybody went home happy. Yep, that's amazing. Why do you think people like this story? I think this story resonated with people because I don't know it restored the faith. In humanity, you know, we've had so many stories of issues with the vaccine rollout and, uh, you know, supply not being met at this point in, in time. And to see how far a team of healthcare workers would go to make sure that six doses of the vaccine would not be wasted tells a lot about how committed healthcare workers are and was a, like a glimpse of hope in this uh, perhaps bumpy vaccine rollout process. 
Andrea Salcedo is a reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.